Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review podcast. My name is Lauren Miller and I was an editor for the 15th issue of the Mechanics Institute Review. I spoke to Jane Roberts, who wrote the story Our Lady, the Sheila and a Gig, to discuss her influences, her writing background, and just what the Sheila and a Gig actually is. Our Lady, the Sheila and a Gig. Dare you to go to the pagan place of worship on the hill, where them godly souls fear to cast their prayers? Dare you to touch the sheila in a gig? Dare you to look at all of her repulsive bits, all hanging out and exposed like a disgorged muscle? Dare you to put your ear to her mouth and listen to them foul incantations spewing from her lips? We play dare, Siobhan. So what? It's the boredom that gestates into skullduggery in a rural hole like this. We like to play games to fill the idle hours. But you need to understand our geography to understand us. There's a road runs through our valley, not an A road. Major roads they only put in if there's somewhere worth going. Traffic's rare heading down this way. Nothing of note to see, and maybe some things you wouldn't yearn to see. Landlocked with no river, no sea to wash away our sins. Mark this, we live in the valley of no good, and no good shall come to pass. You want to play our game, Siobhan? You will end up playing it, regardless. Because of what you did. Because every woman, one way or another, always ends up playing our game in these parts. It's just a game. We're only kidding. It's all frolics and japes to fritter away the time. Aye, and there's plenty of time to kill. There are tales and superstitions about this valley. Tales and superstitions that could scar and scare a foreign heart. Brutal-like, but not a local sister in heart. We've grown up with this folklore, repetition anaesthetising its razor-sharp edges. The rawness of the pain is already set into the fabric of the buildings, the stones. Rawness set into the calcific depths of our bones. No good can come of going to that place on the hill. That's what the village folks say. They call us heathens, the village elders do. Only because we're young and we want to run free, tearing up both the vale and the valley, revelling in the seismic ripples of chance and abandon, like they must have done before us and all their ancestors before them. It takes one heathen to know another. So we act up to our name, act up to our heritage. There's not much else to do here but be heathen. The landscape is nothing but barren vacuity, and yet we're also damn fertile. We women have it tougher than the men. They do what they please with any that pleases them. We get pregnant. We stay in the village. 
There are few exceptions to the rule. Those who want to get away so bad, they end up crazed and roam the hillscape searching for the lights of cars on the nearest road. Ships in the night called to safety from the jagged rocks and murky waters by the beam of a lighthouse. We don't know if most make it anywhere good. Because once they're gone, no one comes back. And then there's our Siobhan, you, the returned, the one who tells us sisters of a life beyond we have no yen to hear about, the one who, impregnated with strangeness, brings uncertainty into our world. So this is why you have to play the game, Siobhan, to prove you're one of us, part of the sisterhood. That is the rule. Some say the shield is there to ward off the evil eye. Others say it's there to encourage it. We don't know, don't care, beyond making it part of our own special rituals. We revel in the potency of it. One of the first girls from our time to play dare, to go up to the chapel, to touch the sheila in a gig, to look at the misshapen form of her body, to listen to the sheila in a gig. She just lay down in a euphoric state afterwards, with limbs splayed out and curled like a dehydrating starfish on the overgrown sward, so far from the water that might wash away her sins, our sins. A chill from the east teased the ears of grass stretching out to listen to the wind as we realised that all of us women are presided over by this grotesque thing in this grotesque place. It is inescapable. We are the living embodiment of it. We are disciples of the cause. Are you going to see the Sheelanigig? Isn't that how you get into trouble? Them lily-livered folk, with their knees and knocking even in their slumbers, they do not know, cannot begin to comprehend the might of the Sheila. To look at it is merely the start. You will want to know what happens if you touch it, We want to feel where the sculptor has carved, where the tools have broken the stone, where the stone has broken the tools. You will want to know if it has been carved at all, or whether it might be something born from the stone belly of Mother Nature, or something indigestible shat out the hole on the other side. It is a despicable thing, a beautiful thing, an ugly thing, a thing's thing, natural and unnatural in equal measure. Looking is one thing, touching is another if you touch it. But that's the dare, Siobhan. You want to play our game. You have to visit the Sheelanigig. So up you go, Siobhan. Up the hill to that pagan place. Up you go to see the contortionist Sheila. The rungs of the ladder are rotten in places, but we know that. We know you will use the ladder. 
How else will you reach up to the Sheila to hear her incantations? It's all part of the game. Your body lies on the ground, Shibon, by the flaking foundations of the stone walls. As your breath fades, the oxygen drains from your body and from the tiny, strange form within your distended womb. Both are quivering in the grass, like felled Russian nesting dolls. You could be in the grip of euphoria, but no, not for our Siobhan. You see, we are the sisterhood. Once parted the valley of no good, you do not leave to become better than us, different to us. Nor do you return to rub our noses in your reincarnation, stranger. You belong to us, not with us, on our own terms, the terms of our grotesque game. You belong to our lady, the Sheila Nigging. So thank you for joining us, Jane, to talk about your short story that was published in May 15. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you. Thank you for actually including the story in there. No worries. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to speak to you about was, um, well, I was rereading it and I saw that the word grotesque was used quite a few times in the story. And I was thinking about the word grotesque and putting it in context of your story. Um, and it brought ideas to mind for me of, um, you know, vulgarity, um, kind of disgust, but also this idea of not being able to understand something or something being um, uncanny or strange uh, that can make people feel distance from something. And I was also thinking about the relationship between your writing and the countryside, because you live in the country, am I right? Yeah, very, very rural area. Mm. And I wondered if the idea of the grotesque and the kind of repellent and the distancing had something to do with what the countryside can sometimes be viewed as from people that live in cities where everything's a lot more urban and there's, especially at this moment in time, there seems to be quite a big disparity between the urban life and the rural life. Um, yeah. I guess I just want your thoughts on that and how you think that came across or if you think it comes across in your short story. Um, I think there is there is a danger with particularly a lot of writing about the countryside that you do get this sort of, um, it's almost like a dependency on kind of uh, translating it as this kind of sort of rural idyll. Um, you know, it, it becomes almost a sort of, mythologized place in a, in a way um, and vice versa you know between country and city I mean I think there's a lot of grotesque everywhere mm. um, and actually I think it's it's one of those things that although these things can repulse people actually you, you're sort of drawn to the inner grotesque mm -hmm. you know in, in, in yourself yeah absolutely um, so there is a there's a sense of familiarity whether you whether you like it or not 
Um, but I, I do, I do love really delving into that in this piece. Um, it's not, it's not meant to be a specific rural location, mm-hmm. um, although it is obviously rural. Um, but I just, I really, really wanted to emphasise this sort of rather stark, dangerous, um, familiar and unfamiliar place. Mm-hmm. And I guess what you were saying about being drawn to something but also being repulsed by something is kind of symbolic in the icon of Sheila herself. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's um, it's that sort of curiosity kills the cat kind of thing, isn't it? It's that mm. sort of intrigue. Um, you see something that you almost just can't not help looking at. Mm-hmm. It really draws you in. And um, can you also tell me a bit more about the character of Siobhan? Because I felt when I was reading it that she was kind of the reader's way in, that someone we can empathise with. Um, and I wonder, I'm intrigued by the name and also whether you were using that character as a way to kind of show all these different, um, quite difficult, quite creepy scenes through. She's definitely um, there for a reason. Uh, originally, um, a very long time ago, when the piece kind of started, um, there was no sort of real, um, I wouldn't say maybe a protagonist, it depends which, which side of the coin you're on really, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was there was no real character there. It was actually these voices who were speaking to the reader or listener. Um, and it, it didn't really work, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I found, actually, it it almost sort of, it left you a bit cold. It didn't draw you in. So by giving a name to this rather unfortunate person, um, I just, I, it was a little bit easier, I think, to mm-hmm. sort of really get that sort of um, sense of anticipation. Um, you know, it... It was something I hadn't thought of doing, but when I did it, it made it made sense. Um, Siobhan, the name is actually it means something like God's grace. Mm-hmm. So I, I sometimes put names in my stories, which um, it's just it's a bit cliched, really, isn't it? Just to <laughs> have, a, have a little have a little sort of you know almost like a little bookmarker for the reader. It's like oh oh that one yeah I can yeah, Wikipedia that, that. that yeah something something might happen to her. Uh huh. Um, so yeah unfortunately it's a bit of a cruel in joke really no I like it I think as well she um, you're right in that she kind of grounds the story as in gives us a place to start from Um, because I think in terms of the editing process one of the things that needed to be changed more so than word choice or anything to do with the actual writing was more the format Um, I think there was some to me, it felt like it had been written for sound, for audio, which makes sense from what you said, that you want, you had lots of kind of different voices coming into the original drafts of the story. Um, and when we were editing it, I think we just went backwards and forwards a little bit about with um, trying to figure out how we can put the story across on the page. Yeah. So reading it, uh, so you can read it kind of coherently, I guess. What, what, did, what would you say? I, I definitely agree with that. It was, um, I think there are some times when you're writing something, you become 
so sort of deeply immersed in maybe one particular aspect of it. So for me, I I knew I wanted to sort of project these voices out. Um, And then in the editorial sort of process, um, I think you and Sue picked up on this sort of rather hilarious kind of situation where you end up with voices that don't actually belong to anyone in particular mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know there was there was a lot of confusion as to who was speaking at times mm-hmm. whether it was the sisterhood whether it was the Sheila whether it was people from the village um, it needed some clear sort of uh, delineation um, on the page you may not be able to sort of see that because there's a, the, there's a lot of vocative um, but you don't know whether it's a you singular or a you plural being referred to. So yeah. it's quite, um, I hope it sort of entices people in in that way. They could think it was either you, the reader, listener, or you, Siobhan. Yeah, and I think that ambiguity works really well with the themes of the story too. And what you said about voice, I think you do really well in putting across the voice of the sisterhood, which you would assume would be a gang of girls, like a group, yeah. Um, and giving them this one resounding voice, uh, it's a really big achievement because it's so hard to put down on paper that kind of multi-vocal effect, but you do it really well. So I think that's one of the, yeah, big achievements of the story. It's definitely, um, I I studied classics for, for my degree. So I've, I've got this sort of long tradition of, looking at plays, um, particularly you take a Greek chorus, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, and although you you generally have voices within the chorus, um, and they they change, their emotions change throughout the the structure of the play, um, I obviously, I wanted to do that in a much um, briefer, (laughs) briefer time frame. It's not, it's not a long story by any means. Um, but I really, I really liked um, the the minads um, in the bakai. Euripides is the bakai. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's strange because it's a an all female chorus, which stands out in itself. And I I think I wanted to sort of almost try and pay a little homage to that because it's so stark and powerful when you get this sort of strong uh, female voice. And it's it's not necessarily for good either. Mm-hmm. I, I quite quite like sort of playing with that. Yeah, there's definitely um, I'd say womanhood and femininity are presented in a ver- in a very broad way in this story. As in, I think you've really tried to capture lots of the different elements of womanhood, um, especially the symbol of Sheila. I mean, that as an icon, I always associated with fertility, but actually you've really delved deep into the other connotations mm. of that icon too. Um, yeah, I wonder if you can explain a bit more about the Sheila gig and its origins and what drew you to that as the title of your story and the basis of your story. Well, um Around around here, particularly in South Shropshire, uh, Herefordshire, um, Ireland, parts of France, Spain. I think some some Sheila's now being found in sort of places like Norway as well. Um, you 
have these amazing sculptures. I, I thought they were gargoyles before I actually really sort of delved into mm-hmm. what they're all about. Because um, they're terrifying to look at, aren't they? They're quite... They, some of them are really scary. <laughs> they are so... Um, it's it's one of those things where you see sort of parts of someone's body just sort of gaping open. Yeah. There's, there's no sense of uh, modesty or... You know, it, it's it's all there. Um, I I saw a few of them, and I I suddenly realised that actually this this whole history was attached to these things. Um, the there's one in Church Stretton, which is quite close to where I live, and it's actually been preserved from um, an earlier building, and it's 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 actually sort of changed position in its current church um, and the Victorians sort of put it round the back instead of round the front um, but it's it's not necessarily a church um, figurative statue mm-hmm. so you can find them on secular buildings too um, but in this story um, shamelessly shamelessly I thought religion wonderful I'll, I'll play with that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why not <laughs> seem to fit very well yeah um, take take something predominantly male and turn it on its head make mm-hmm. it female um but they they really do have a sort of multiplicity of interpretations um it's it's quite ironic because they are literally set in stone but they're not mm-hmm. so you know it's um are they jokes are they fertility stones are they art mm-hmm. or you know, there's there's also this sort of sense of uh, kind of apotropaic warding off the evil eye mm-hmm. and then again depending on which stance you take are they there to ward off the evil eye or are they there to encourage it mm-hmm. and I again I just I love the playfulness of of that um, so hopefully hopefully it comes across as quite sort of macabre playful <laughs> yeah I think I think it does as well in the way that you're bringing um the ancient and the modern together because my impression of the story as well was that these were kind of the sisterhood could also be you know the kind of cool scary girls at school and they're kind of like (laughs) bullying Siobhan a little bit to go and you know see the Sheila there's hints at um teenage pregnancy in there there's some hints at kind of quite modern day you know uh issues for young girls and I feel like that's where a lot of the playfulness comes from in the mixing of these two worlds, the old and the new, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, I was wondering as well if you could talk about your um, the influence of folk on your work and I, folklore. I love, I love folklore. Um, I just it's it's one of those things that um, you know when you when you grow up. And suddenly you realise that nursery rhymes are actually so creepy. Mm-hmm. They're so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, um, you know, actually living in a rural area, um, sometimes you you get a sort of time delay on some of these rather superstitious elements, um, and they, they they sort of pop up in the everyday. And suddenly you sort of you you take these um, ideas and words. And you suddenly realise that as soon as you go somewhere else, even even if it's sort of two valleys away, 
these words suddenly mean nothing mm. to the people you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So naturally, you um, you almost feel like you've sort of actually kind of been woven in to mm. the folklore around here. So you know, it's it's incredibly um, wonderful mm. actually because. For me, I think it's it's given me a sense that um, worldwide folklore um, translations. You know, I I love to find out about things, so um, it's it's played a big part of my life. Um, but naturally, um, Angela Carter can't can't mm-hmm. not talk about Angela Carter. No. <laughs> so what um, what speci- are there any specific? Um pieces or specific collection collections of Angela Carter's that you felt helped like influenced you in the story? Absolutely love the Bloody Chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, from the very, very first time I read it, such a slim volume, but there's there's just such an array of experimentation with narrative, words, you know, she she just absolutely blows your mind in in such a short short piece um puss in boots mm-hmm. in there is is the big favorite um she references so many things sort of from committee de arte um there's such a playfulness in the characterization of something you again should be really familiar with but she she takes that idea and suddenly it's it's an Angela Carter Puss in Boots. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I don't I don't think the Sheila's in that league. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got the same, you know, unashamed. Um, it's un- unashamedly trying to play again with conventions and not being afraid to do your own thing with something quite archaic and historical, which I think you do as well in your story. Um, so I would say it's definitely not far from Angela Carter at all. Well, she, she and um, Ali Smith mm-hmm. in, in particular, that that sense of boldness, you know, if, if you could write every single story like that, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as well, I mean, the two examples you gave were women and also you write, your story is very much about... Um, women and the female experience um what about your in your other writing do you tend to write a lot about women or what are your preoccupations in some of your other stories um, there are there are sometimes um i wrote a piece for, for um well it wasn't written for litro it was, it was picked up by litro um about uh, it's essentially a sort of kind of play on on female gaze, mm-hmm. um, and it's about this woman who essentially sort of strips off and goes goes into this art gallery and sort of starts flaunting herself around the statues, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> um, another one, um, a short story um, uh, which is just out now um, is. It's about a wine tasting. Um, again, there's a huge sort of sense of um, fertility theme sort of running through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that works quite well 
with the vine structure and um, it's sort of also based on a, a Dutch old master's Vanitas painting. So death, death probably features more than fertility. Ah, okay. And this, oh, yeah. the, but, la- um, the last, do, oh, sorry. Sorry, no, I, I do tend to take, um, say, one like specific thing. So in this story, it's probably more the actual Sheila herself. And um, that's certainly where this, the story started. Um, and then you know, it will be it will be one thing per story, and then mostly death and destruction fall around that. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of um, in terms of Mere Fifteen, and uh, what opportunities have come your way since then? Could you maybe talk about how uh, the publication in Mere Fifteen um, has given you some opportunities, or changed maybe the way that you approach your writing? I think I think it's amazing actually. Um, I I'm part of a scheme with Writing West Midlands, um, so they have a sort of mentoring scheme, Route 04. And I think I heard about the call through through them and um, uh, some other other writing friends. And of course, with with the Arts Council grant, you've been able to actually invite people mm-hmm. from you know the worlds of Shropshire or Wales. Um, and it's it's not just a London centric publication, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, it helps so much. Um, I mean, I I choose to live where I live, but obviously there are so many reasons why. Um, but automatically, you you do have that sort of sense of becoming a little bit more marginalised the further away you are from London. Mm-hmm. So publications like this really actually put that spotlight, the, the orange spotlight of mm-hmm. mere 15. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, actually. Um, and to see, to see a publication, you know, on bookshelves again, and it's, it's yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I've, I've had a, a pretty bad run of ill health, and this kind of marks my return sort of back into writing in a way so it's it's always going to have a very special place in my heart oh, well thank you so much for being a part of it and have you got anything coming up that you'd like to talk about uh so recently i was invited by uh karen stevens and jonathan taylor to um contribute a story to high spirits a round of drinking stories by valley press mm-hmm. Um, it's got some amazing people in it. It's all about drinking, so Excellent. you know, dry, dry January, dry yeah. January, whatever. You know, you can you can read about it instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got like Jen Ashworth, uh, Louis de Berniers, uh, Kathy Galvin, Alison oh. Moore, me, yay, <laughs> <laughs> so many people. Um, and that's uh, that was launched um, uh, in November, and it's having its London launch in February at the Word Factory in Waterstones Piccadilly. Great. That's going to be some launch with a title called High Spirits. I think there's wine. Yay! (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Jane. Oh, thank you for having me. To buy a copy of Mechanics Institute Review 15, go to mironline.org forward slash anthology. The Mechanics Institute Review Anthology was made possible with funding from the Arts Council.
If you want to find out more about the Mechanics Institute Review, follow us on Twitter at MIROnlineBBK. And thank you for listening.